0: Hey guys, this week's episode of Punching Sideways has Jacob Wolke from Walking Farms and uh, being a little bit of a farmer's daughter and growing up on a dairy farm, I was super interested to hear a little bit about his regenerative farming practices and all the other businesses that he has been involved in over the years. He's an Aubrey Wodonga local and he's just about to open a new venture which is basically the equivalent of... You know, a tap-and-go, 24-hour gym set-up, but for a butcher shop. Give us a listen.
1: That's what makes life um, interesting, right? All these different things aren't what they seem. Yeah. I feel like we're trying to push out. I talked to this. One of my best friends is my accountant. Mm. Um Peter and we talk about it all the time, and it seems like society is trying to push on a sea of sameness. Like yep. we're trying to make everybody conform and align, and if you disagree, you're bad. But if we're all the same, how boring would everything be? Like <laughs> I just love the. That's why I love traveling. I've been in nearly fifty countries, and some of the stuff is just like absolutely blow away, shocking. The stuff you see around the place, but it's why you went. Yeah, you know, it's, if it was the same as home, you wouldn't go. You'd stay at home.
0: I'm the same. I I don't like sameness I'm much more drawn to people with a different story or have something interesting to say I'm non-conformist in that regard that's oh it's so much more interesting to sit there and listen to say you Jacob because you have you've grown up in a completely different way that I've grown up so I'll get a whole new perspective whether I agree with it or not I will still want to understand how you got to that point. It's cool.
2: It's funny you mentioned travel because I was retelling a story the other day about a lady I used to work with and her. she came back from the United States and we asked how it was because we all have America envy and she had a lot of extra cash when, and spent 10 weeks there. We're like, oh, she must have done all this amazing stuff. And her first comment was, oh, the food wasn't as good as home. <laughs> you went there expecting the food to be better. Yeah, look, that was her. That was the one thing that she commented on, and then she just went into this loop
1: on how she couldn't wait to get home to eat food in Australia. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, I've i started finding that a lot when I started traveling with my wife because I did. I've probably done more by myself mm-hmm. before I met my wife Anne and we've done a bit together since. And she like we land, you know, we land in Barcelona and we're dropping our bikes off at the hotel or whatever, and then it's. She knows which cafe we're going to for our first coffee mm-hmm. and she's got dinner booked somewhere and she's done weeks early, and she's got everything organized and I just want to go to a church or a museum yep. you know or yep. some or a or a cemetery or go to one of Gaudis Can um, I ask Edwards. you a
2: question and do do you think though that it sounds like what you're saying is that you're more extemporaneous and you just go with the flow and just want to do things and more experiential things and she might be a little bit more as far as having an itinerary Do you think that maybe you're meeting in the middle because of that?
1: We definitely complement each other. Like, I think if my wife travelled without me, she'd never have seen any famous landmark or you know ever experienced it. But and you'd probably end up lost. Yeah, (laughs) lost or um, you know, just I drift around a lot. And I, you know, sometimes when you just want to do everything, touch everything, smell anything, you don't get a whole lot done. You know, it's good yep. to have somebody to pick you up and put you back on the track <laughs> and, and wind you up. My wife winds me up like one of those marching little <laughs> <laughs> soldiers that goes, yeah. oh, we have a lot of fun together. But, you know, before I met my wife, I had never had a glass of coffee. Um I met her when I was, uh, how old must I have been? 23 or something. And, or 22. Never had a cup of coffee. You know, now we own a cafe and I'm all about the coffee. It's it, it's just such a funny thing what they bring into your life. She's definitely a foodie traveler. She would struggle in America. Okay.
0: <laughs> so we have Jacob Walkie here in the Punching Sideways studio. I'm super excited. I've heard a lot about you, but most recently and um, the first time I really wanted to get you on is because I hear about this great new shop that you're about to open up. And when when I've just been talking to you, I know you have a lot of great shops and you have a lot of experience in retail and serving the public and with your farm. But you did a, a story, an Instagram story, which explained your reasoning behind why you were doing it the way you were and not employing staff, like which would create pushback. So for me, that was interesting and you're very transparent. So I feel like we're going to learn a lot today. And I'm super excited about that. So the main, well, the first reason is you've got this great butcher shop that you're about to about to open. Can you tell me a little bit about that, and then we can maybe backtrack into what led you to this point?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The well, firstly, thanks for having me. Fun to be
0: here. No, it's cool.
1: The everything that I sort of take on is opportunistic. Like, there's no. There's no master plan and things aren't very well thought out, which to those closer to me might be more obvious, that, mm-hmm. you know, from people that get the semi-polished stuff on Facebook. But I took over the family farm, which was a, a hobby farm, you know, I took it about two and a half years ago. So, it was uh, 40 hectares and you go there to ride your motorbike and mm-hmm. bash around in the car and light a bushfire and we just had uh, not a lot of bushfire, but a fire. Uh, that's a bit touchy, isn't it? No, it's all and, right. I've lit...
0: My aunt Mel had
2: a whole segment on this show which yeah. is probably our most talked about segment where she talked about lighting a fire by accident yeah. <laughs> that became <laughs> an actual one. bushfire.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. I'm going to go listen. To, to call
0: the CFA on myself after I joined the CFA. Yeah. So anyway, Unreal. continue. Yep. Here,
1: here we go. And, you know, it was just a conventional hobby farm where you just left all the gates open and the cows walked around and ate all the grass and at the end of the year they got mm-hmm. sold off and that was pocket money for mum and dad and off they went. And I started getting right into farming. Uh, in a very specific way, two and a half, three years ago. And I bullied my way in as I do. And I took control of mum and dad's farm and started doing things the way I wanted for a multitude of reasons. But I'm, I'm a, I'm a welfare guy. I think Mm -hmm. animals can be treated a lot better and more appropriately. And I feel like when we do that, a lot of our other concerns fall in place. Like we've got all these, you know, animal pandemics where we've got African swine fever and foot and mouth and all these diseases. And, you know, we've got the new H2N2, avian bird flu that's blowing out of Victoria, all these things. And we've got all our environmental issues. And I feel like a lot of those would be mitigated if we just treated the animal in an, in an appropriate kind way, which is the way we hold ourselves on the farm. But then to make our farm viable, because it's so much effort, like it's labor, we mm-hmm. do. So we're not using heaps of antibiotics and, and sprays and poisons. We don't use any, but every the answer to all of that is labor. So we have to sell our product direct to our end consumer. You know, mm-hmm. we're not just selling the animals off at the yards, we're processing them and then uh, selling the final cut. So instead of selling cows at the yards, we're selling snags and scotch steaks to people direct. Mm-hmm. and. We're selling a lot more than I thought I would, and a, and a lot of people want our produce for a lot of different reasons, which is great for me. And I was just having trouble uh, maintaining, giving it all out. Meet people order off Instagram, and I meet them here and do a delivery, and it's just like my life was just going crazy, driving around <laughs> delivering meat all the time. And we we decided to get the butchery up and going, but the full time like the the cheapest way you can run a butchery is one full-time staff member if you're going to be open normal hours. So you're, mm-hmm. you're nine to five, whatever it is. And our uh, operation just doesn't have it in it. Um, it wouldn't wouldn't be a thing, you know. It just doesn't make any sense at all. I just sat down and just on the back of an envelope like we do because we reuse them because they're free. I mm-hmm. uh, just did a quick um, budget and it just didn't work. And then I thought, well, hang on a second. let me. How can I do it without staff? And I just banged up a concept really quickly. So we've got a small tight loyal brilliant customer base who i trust so we've devised a system where it's a members only store but it's not really hard to become a member the the idea of being a member is just so uh, we know the movement who's in the building and who's out and you apply to be a member you get your your code or a card or your fob or whatever it is let yourself into the building grab all the product out of the freezers we sell everything frozen because we don't have the turnover to and and the supply, because some of our animals are only done seasonally or some mm-hmm. of our produce is seasonal. So we, f- we hard freeze everything minus 20 to keep it fresh. They come in, grab all the stuff out of the freezer, take photos of all the barcodes on a, a smartphone app we set them up with, mm-hmm. hit pay and they leave the building. And that's it. No staff. You know, I've, We've already got a butcher out back because we already owned the butchery as a processing center. I wanted to take more control of the means of production as you do. Mm-hmm. Sounds very communistic, doesn't it? I want to seize control of the means of production, but it's the flip side. It's you know, it's a more free market angle that I'm doing it from, and we just thought we'd just tack this on the front. So I don't know if that paints. It's a, it's yeah. a confusing – it's a really simple, hard-to-explain thing.
0: You're just like well, a 24-hour access gym.
1: It yeah. is. All the, all the software we're tapping into and all the monitoring services and everything, I'm piggybacking on everything gyms do.
2: I was going to say it sounds like club line for me
1: Yes, bring but it, on. it also That's a good the analogy
2: the the small town <laughs> loyalty trust analogy would be the local farmer that puts his very best fruit out on the road doesn't keep it for absolutely. himself and then you put money into a can and you take the fruit you want. Yep,
1: absolutely. You know, There's a guy
2: on the way to Corioong between Telangatta and Corioong, probably 10k's past Telangatta that I remember just as a kid thinking, "Oh, this guy's amazing! This amazing fruit's just sitting out on the road," and it's a pure loyalty based. Yes. Oh, that was the stars.
0: He that's had the, the best watermelons ever. Yeah, correct. <laughs> the best watermelon.: so I
1: still I buy pumpkins off one of the Starboys. thats uh, they own a farm next to us in Faguna and they yeah. sold it for development and they've got another one now out at uh, Splitters Creek. I think, is it Don? Don Starr, he must be in his 80s. And I go out once a year and fill up my truck with his pumpkins, he's yep. a brilliant home gardener.
0: They were amazing, amazing gardeners. And I know you could not top those watermelons no, out there.
1: On absolutely the side amazing. I don't know whether my parents were
2: stoked about the mess in the car, but just with the concept, I mean, the way you've articulated it to us, that sounds like a pretty refined, I guess, explanation. How did you find explaining that to people to begin with? That it's going to be members only because, I mean, I haven't heard that concept for
1: produce around here in any form. Well, every time I describe it to – and it's always hardest to sell these concepts to friends and family. You know, the people closest to you, your harshest critics, which is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, also annoying sometimes. But every time I started the pitch, which I just gave you, I'd get interrupted on every point. Like, yeah. What do you mean? It's members only. I'm like, well, if you just let me get to the end, you know, it'll all make a bit more sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's not, it's not exclusive, and no one can ever become a member. It's members only, like a gym is. Like you can't just walk into a 24 hour gym. But if you want to be a member, just be a member. You know. Yeah. But mm-hmm. on the flip side, we can't really just have everybody being a member because we can't feed everybody. Our our production is what it is, and it's growing all the time. But you know, if you look at, we're a very productive farm. If Per hectare, we're producing eight times the value that's standard in Australia per hectare. Wow. Um, so, we're you know, we're really punching a- above our weight, but...
2: I thought he was going to say
1: it, punching sideways, and I was like, oh, go. I thought it didn't work.
2: <laughs> yeah, it didn't work. It was never going to work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You still should have done it. Yeah. And
1: then I panicked. I'm like, is it down or up? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> um, Punching up, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but still, if people, like if you two became members and we're a part of a customer group that bought all their meat off us because most of what we do is meat. I can Mm -hmm. only handle 110 of you.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: That's my whole customer base. That's my whole supply sucked up and that's taking out the wholesaling and the to supermarkets and restaurants which I'm currently engaged in which is small scale but it takes up a bit. So I probably will discriminate a bit as to who our customers are because different people want it for different reasons and if if, it, if it's relatively full and we and we have an opening because supplies in large and there's a few people on the waiting list, I would choose who gets it based on why they want it. Like we have a lot of families that want our meat because it's the only meat their children can eat because there's no preservatives in it and there's no mm-hmm. poisons used. And they really uh, value that as a... As a health thing for their family, mm-hmm. and I've got a, I get vegans sent to me flat out by couple. There's three local GPs that have cottoned onto me, and pasture-based meats is a real buzzword, and they're just flicking people to me these vegans uh, that, for whatever reason, that they've got a bit of, they're a bit anemic, depression, lethargic, whatever it might be, because they haven't quite figured out how to um, fill that gap in their diet that, yeah. that that protein fixes, and they're getting sent to me flat out, and I want to be the guy to fill. That for them because it there's a lot of I guess gratification and it really feels like you're accomplishing something rather than just like banging out snags and feeding the masses. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So and
2: know, I guess when you're delineating between those people and just regular people that that don't have those concerns, yeah, I, they, they've got other places to source meat
1: and there's heaps of great meat and there's sort of everything, everything that you want's available. But I tick a a, a lot of boxes at the same time. So when I talk to people about what we you know, do at the farm and and why I enjoy it so much. I like the multifaceted angle where we have a, there's a welfare element uh, in in regards to the way we treat our animals. Mm -hmm. There's the environmental angle, which I spoke about. Uh, I feel like there's social responsibility, which is what I just touched on, you know, giving people real food instead of this, you know, chalked up cardboard. And then there's a financial um, aspect. The whole thing's got to balance. And if it works well and you're profitable, you can do more. And f- feed more people, um, and I can't remember the fifth tenant that I normally talk about, but it's nah. really important.
2: Wait, can I just ask one thing yes. I don't think we've touched on it yet. Jake the is the actual farm classified as organic or no. is there a subclassification or any classification for what you're doing?
1: No, I have specifically not pursued any classifications uh, for a couple reasons, and one I personally believe that most of them are just corrupt.
0: If you like us, like I like us, get onto PunchingSideways.com, give us a bit of a likesy, have a bit of an exploration around and maybe buy us a coffee.
2: Is the actual farm classified as organic or is there a subclassification or any classification for what you're doing?
1: No, I have specifically not pursued any classifications uh, for a couple reasons. And one, I personally believe that most of them are just corrupt there's no integrity behind an organic certification because you can still use um, badly treated immigrant Mm labour. Or like there's there's a common thing that farmers like myself bring up a, a common example of blueberry farms that are certified organic, but they're raising blueberries in pots above the ground in organic soil, and then they just like tarp all the soil underneath it and just destroy it so they don't have to deal with the weeds. So their environmental impact is actually... Not good, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but it's an organic blueberry. Or you can still get certified organic eggs by chickens laid in cages as long as they're treated organically. So it doesn't tick all the other boxes for me. It's really just a, you know, it's better than whatever, you know, the – the. Main commodity might be, but it's not enough for me. And I hate paperwork and I hate bureaucracy because I'm not <laughs> going to pay somebody to lord over me with what I can and can't do on it my farm.
0: Seems like yeah. the communists sort of wanting to take control of everything. You know,
1: there's a lot of different certifications about, and you just Google, you just go on the TFN lookup, and they're all you know owned by sole traders, most of them. So there's mm-hmm. somebody just making dough off your hard work by telling you what you can and can't do and giving you a label. Now, some of those labels are helpful, I guess, to farmers because you know the the Organic certification definitely lets farmers get more dough Mm -hmm. for their product. Mm -hmm. But I'm selling my stuff for more than the organic people. And the reason is I'm a salesman and I'm being open, like you mentioned before, Mm -hmm. and transparent with my customer base. I don't hide anything. I get on on YouTube at the start of the year and I film a 30-minute video giving my followers my financial projections for the year on the farm. And then I give them updates as we go because I, I want people to... You know, understand that I'm being earnest and honest and really trying to do a good thing. I'm not shying behind profitability being a, a tenant of a business. And I've had uh, good success so far in attracting customers willing to pay us our price. I don't feel like I need the buttons.
2: Can I ask you a question then? And it's something that it sounds like you're doing it for an authentic reason, but there are a lot of people that have business related conversations online where they share something like a financial projection and they're conflating transparency with authenticity. So when you went to do that, the conversation with yourself, why did you decide that that was how you were going to share your goal for the business publicly? Yeah, sure. Because there would be a group of people out there thinking, well, that's very transparent. Yes. That's as transparent as you can get, but what's the what authenticity is there to to that?
1: So it was – I was – you know – I'm not a nervous character, and I was nervous about putting it up there. I filmed it, and I, it, was, it goes for half an hour. And I watched it again, and then I got my wife to watch. And I'm <laughs> like, should Should I put this up? Because obviously, like people are going to have a go at you for making too much money, mm-hmm. yeah. or have a go at you for having a crap business. Yep, you're not making enough money. Like you're stuck yeah. in the middle, and anyone can throw any criticisms at you. <laughs> the reason I did it is in my space, which is regenerative agriculture. You know, we're not uh, it's we're not happy with sustainable. You know, yep. why would we want to maintain a status quo? Not interested. We want to regenerate. We want to build and improve. And in that model, you've got a lot of old world agriculture firms, farmers, what have you, saying that regenerative agriculture doesn't stack up. You can't make a living. And then you also get the big boys saying you can't you can't have a small property as a farm. Mm-hmm. You need more land and i've done my own numbers and you know i'm only two and a half years into this venture but it's not my first venture and i'm looking at it going you know this is possible you can have a small amount of land you can farm regeneratively which just basically means working with your animals with nature not being this high input thing and you can make a living for yourself and you know the space i guess the regen space is uh, small-ish comparative to what agriculture is um, and there's a lot of. gurus and, and a lot of people that put themselves out there to be trainers and stuff and I don't want to be anything like that but I just thought if I could add value to some of these young people trying to start up their little enterprise I'm all for it because I don't want to operate in seclusion I don't want to be the guru farmer that rocks Aubrey ongar I, I want to help facilitate there to be another 50 guru farmers that rock Aubrey Wodonga I don't I want to work in community with the other neighbors around me so I thought anything I could do that would may, maybe you know give someone a starting point for their own little enterprise, that so they could replicate something like what we do. If I could facilitate it, I was happy to do that. Yeah, that's brilliant.
0: There is one thing, uh, and I, I did say this to Josh just this morning. I said one thing that I do like about watching your videos is that you genuinely, really seem well. And now talking to you, you do care about the animals. Like it's not a fake. Oh, I'm doing this. Like this is, this is you. You love what you love them. You love talking to them. I I grew up on a farm, and I. Talk to animals all the time, and it used to really bug me. And I, I'm not going to throw vegans under the bus or anything like that, but people having a perception that just because you're a farmer and animals get killed that you mistreat them. But their life up to that point, if you're personally invested, like all out, we had dairy cows, and they all had names. Mm. Every single one had name, and we hand-read all the cards. So it was just... Obviously, you're trying to make a living, but it wasn't meaning that we were mistreating our animals at all. So that argument really used to bug me, that you're getting something out of them, so you can't be giving anything back. It really used to...
2: You only need to see what the loss of an animal does to a farmer. Like My dad was a part-time farmer, and he yep. was always devastated if he would lose an animal.
0: Yeah.
1: It's the worst day on the farm, yeah. for sure. Like, we, we, you know, we breed pigs and sows lay on piglets, you know, yeah. just about every litter. And it sucks that not, not much gets me down I'm a pretty level, yeah, you know, go lucky guy. And, you know, it sucks the wind out of my sails for days when I lose a piglet. And it's an, it's almost inevitable because we don't use sow stalls. We're yeah. not prepared to put them in that environment. So that's, you know, that's another interesting
0: mm-hmm.
1: welfare discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I do... Love the animals, and like you said, you know, you're not wanting to throw the vegans under the bus. I've got more in common with just about every vegan out there yeah. than, than <laughs> the average meat eater. Yeah, but I just can't talk to them. Like, yeah. I've got some one of my best mates, and his um fiance are, are vegans. We have great discussions, yeah. and you know, there's no respect lost. But for the most part, they're really uh, you know militant. But I, even the fact that I struggle to engage with them, I respect. Because yep. they're, they're living by their values. You know, yep. they go, eating animals sucks. We're not going to do it. We're not going to let you do it. And I sort of go, hats off to you. You know, you're really standing by your values. And, you know, we, we share a lot of values and we, we don't share some. Mm-hmm. And I just think, you know, humans are meant to eat animals. I think this is part of what we do. And we, if that's something that we're going to partake in, we've got an obligation to do it the best way we can. So we talk about it on the farm. The animals should have one bad day, and that's the last one. Yeah, and we're not even content with that. Like the the local abattoir that we use, which is the closest we can, because we don't want all that travel time. They want our cows delivered. We process two cows a fortnight at the moment. They want them delivered the night before slaughter. I don't, so they can relax, you know, and calm down before they go in for processing. The way we handle our um, cows on the farm. They don't need time to relax. Like they're super chilled animals. We just open the truck and they walk on. The The, mm-hmm. the transport guys we use absolutely love our animals because cows are getting wilder because farms are getting bigger because yeah. young people can't afford to buy farms. So what happens when a farm sells it consolidates? And as these farms get bigger, the cattle get on bigger ranges and see people less often, and they're just becoming wilder all around mm-hmm. the world. So we get up mega early to they want them there. They need to be there like 6 a.m. for first to To walk in and for processing, and if you're not willing to get them there at, the night before, they have to come in before six. So we get up like four in the morning and do it. Yeah, you know, because I would, I just, I rest easier. It's better on the animal. I don't want them to be in that. It's not a nice place. An abattoir is not a nice place. Yeah. And I wouldn't like to sleep out there myself. And I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm not getting killed. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So we we inconvenience ourselves heaps because we try to make a one bad day life for our animals. And even that one bad day. Could be done so much better in a decentralized system. Like the fact that we don't have many options. Mm-hmm. The the abattoir industry is you know so regulated that everyone's just crumbled and you're just left with a few places around the. the and there's no options for people like me, you know. So yeah. let's watch this space. I'm going to start an abattoir. <laughs> hey, punching sideways legends. Guy Miley Corrine here. I'm Josh's co-host in Big and Tall Trivia. We've got our next theme trivia night coming up on Wednesday the 26th of May. So pop it in the diary. It's going to be at the Bended Elbow in Aubrey from 7.30pm. The night's theme is pop music and artists from the 80s, 90s, naughties, and today. It's free to play too, which is great. So there's prizes on the night. It's also palmy night as well. So preview the pop master and crush a palmy at the same time. Check out facebook.com slash trivia for all the event and booking details. And now let's get back to the podcast.
0: Right,
2: you've heard of here
1: first. <laughs>
0: no, I just, I, I just love it. Like it's, I mean, not the thought of killing something, but it is part of, you know, making a living. And but I, I really respect you saying that. You respect others for their opinions and their values, and I would also hope that you know I don't have the same opinion as. Maybe Josh or you or whatever, but to know that they stand by that and they, that's how they live their life, then that's fine by me. Just allow me to have my own values and live my way pretty much. But how did you get, how did you get to a pig lover from originally when you just rolled in here? You used to be part of the music shop over in Lavie?
1: Yes. Yes. So if if you go right back, there was something on Facebook the other day that said, um, you know, someone shared a post and what did you want to be when you were in um, primary school? And I said, vet, I wanted to be a vet. Really? And I've got a few friends that are vets. And if they listen to this, they always hate, they always hate it when I say this, but my father, you know, I came home, I spoke to the careers lady or whatever it was and I'm going to be a vet. And dad goes, what do you want to be a vet for? I said, I love animals. He goes, oh, so you want to hang around sick animals all day because you love animals. And I thought that sucks because <laughs> you want to put dogs down, you know, yeah. and I just thought, you know, being like, obviously there's the altruistic, I'm mm-hmm. going to help them. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not for me. You know, yeah. that, and, and that scared me off. It was a, a good reality check for six year old Jake from his, you know, uh, <laughs> rough and tough uh, vegetarian father. Really? Um, yep. Yeah. yeah. For no re- re- real reason. When people ask him why he's vegetarian, he just goes, I just hate animals. Yeah, <laughs> Not true, but um, that's the way he palms that off. But anyway, I, I've always loved animals. So to end up back here is quite fortuitous. And I've, I've sort of been wrestling with it a little bit. Like, has it been lost time? Mm-hmm. You know, like my, my grandfather was an immigrant from Germany. He came over 63 years ago when he was 21 as a toolmaker, a tradesman. And not long after, ended up having a um, 50 sow piggery that he, start, he bought his first couple of pigs with his overtime working on the yeah. tools and then he's got a 50 and then he did a bit of share farming, you know, 20 tonne of onion a year and all this other stuff and ended up in Albury-Wodonga to run uh, – he bought Bird's Nest Chicken on Dean Street decades ago. So I sort of think, you know, should the family have stuck in agriculture? But a little plug here quickly, I've just read a book called Range. I can't yeah. remember the name of the author, but the book Range was unreal because it was, you know, sort of – pacifying me a little bit that my experiences and education in different industries is going to give you breadth of range that you can take in. And it was was backing, you know, breadth in skills is better than specializing is the Mm -hmm. argument, you know, because you put your blinkers on when you're a specialist. Anyway, finished school, went to work for my father who had a record store called The Music Shop in Lavi Centro yeah which was awesome
0: it was awesome
1: working there was awesome you know Lavi. as i left school when i was 14 and to do you know five years four or five years there full time you know we did we did seven days a week 7 a.m till 7 p.m late night shopping was like a 16 hour day and it was just unreal. The customers out there and the the people I got to deal with and the sites I saw was, it was, that was, that was school. <laughs> that was you know, an school's education. got nothing. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> it was such a big shop, too, on the corner. Yes. Yep. It covered both sides. You could get everyone on each direction. My dad's
1: through. awesome. Like, I, I feel like I did my retail apprenticeship with my father there. And that was, you know, immigrant retail 101. Cause, like I said earlier, you're right on the back of it, envelopes. Mm-hmm. You know, you would never, ever, get a piece of paper out of the printer to write notes on you know it'd it'd just be you know disowned material because that (laughs) i paid for that and you don't need a nice fresh crisp bit of paper that i'm going to print on use this envelope and we still do that you know we've got a couple you know big businesses in town and all my notes are old bits of paper cut in half and then paper clipped in the corner and all the staff use that (laughs) i did (laughs) i did four or five years there and when the industry started tanking out because of downloading really affecting our business Mm -hmm. you know I, I take my hat off to the guys like sanity and stuff who are still out there really giving the industry a red hot crack but it wasn't for us and especially being in shopping centers and tied into their long overbearing leases with share profit and big brothers telling you you can't put that poster in that window and your music's too loud and Having all that, um, you know, going on as well, we just thought, you know what, as soon as our lease is up, we're just going to bow out. Uh, mm-hmm. So it ran reasonably well till we finished it. And just as we, just as it finished up, the old Pushies in Albury on Young Street came up for sale. So we bought that. Uh, I bought it with my parents. We went in partnership and we we phased over there and we've had uh, Pushies for 10 years now. Yeah. Yep. Wow. And we, re- we rebranded that cycle station because Pushies said, you might want to change your name now.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's probably best.
0: Cycle Station is, well, I think it's very well known around here. It's a good little, it's such. it's in such a good spot as well. Great spot. And what made you- We uh,
1: developed that building. We, we we purchased that property five years ago. On, Sorry, on the can dot. we just tell people where it is? It's, a, it's on the corner next to the railway station in town. So that's why it's Cycle Station. We ran a competition and a customer came up with the name. We thought it was appropriate. But it's yeah, it's on the Young Street corner there, and it was the old Windsor Park Bowling Club. You know, when we bought that, we got hounded in the local paper. Everyone complaining that it was an absolute shame to get rid of the old bowling club, and we had to evict squatters out of it. You know, it it had been empty for years, and mm-hmm. you know, just that tall, I don't, not tall poppy, just that people just like whinging for no reason. Yeah, you know? <laughs> seriously,
0: people are good at pointing fingers <clears throat> and complaining about stuff that they're not.
1: Equipped or willing to
0: change themselves,
2: <laughs> just in the context of having now the the bike shop yes. for ten years, and that's a business that, and it's an interest people have that only seems to grow. Yes, one thing I've noticed with sanity is obviously the rise of super bingeable television and televisions, I guess quote unquote golden age, from maybe you know Battlestar Galactica through to you know, Breaking Bad through to Game of Thrones they've ridden that crest a little bit mm-hmm. of being able to sell a lot of DVDs and Blu-rays and also one thing, high profit margin stuff like games. Sure. Card games and puzzles and that sort of stuff. Did you guys have any of that stuff that, because you can see just by the percentage of retail space that Sanity allocate to music, it's very small. Yes. They're basically a pop culture. I haven't still. been in one for years, yeah. to be honest. and I there's not, not many of them and some of them are closing. Did you guys have any... Anything that you knew back then? Did you have any foresight into maybe music? If you had have moved away, do you think
1: you could have? Uh, you know, maybe we- Or were you ready to move on regardless? Our, our strength uh, was our back catalogue. And, you know, that's probably a silly thing to say because we've just established that back catalogue isn't a thing anymore. But when- It when is the for music was, lovers, though. So. Yeah. Well, and when, when, the, when the business was cranking and when you couldn't go online and download stuff, the way we- uh, differentiated ourselves from the Sanities was by having being the back catalogue people. Yeah. And when I started, there was two customers and I haven't spoken to them for years. i got no idea where they are, but there was Jacko and Katrina mm-hmm. and they wouldn't be served by me. They came in and dad served them. Cause I think I did something really early when I started there, 14, 15 and I screwed an order, forgot to order something. You got I, the I,
2: the German live I, tape but, instead of the Japanese live exactly. tape. <laughs> yeah. I did
1: something wrong and they just did not want a bar of me. And it, it upset me cause I, I, I'm um, diligent, Mm -hmm. earnest, I want to do a good job. And one day dad couldn't, they used to bring in a a, a list every fortnight with all this super rare stuff. They wanted to buy CDs and DVDs and pass it to dad and dad would go down and write down all the quotes. So most of it was indented stuff Mm -hmm. and they'd go back and they'd cross out the ones they didn't want, tick the ones they want and he'd order it. And it was just a fortnightly pattern. They did this for years and years (laughs) and they spent a lot of money in the shop. They were were our best customers, no Mm -hmm. doubt, like heads and shoulders and one day dad crossed something on the on the envelope and I'm looking at that he couldn't find it. And I've looked at it and, you know, being younger and being a bit more computer savvy, I found it and I just came and wrote on it and I didn't say anything. I just did it. And they noticed and to be over a course of a couple weeks, they used to, I remember the first time and I just, I absolutely felt like a million bucks and I haven't thought about this memory for years, but I remember they walked in and I've gone, dad, Jacko and Katrina are here and he's come out from the back room. And they've they've stood there and they've shook their head at him, like real quick little Kurt shakes, and they've pointed at me, you know, little sharp points. we want him, and cool. I had him you know in my pocket for three years, and I found them everything, and if you know, if I, <laughs> if I, if, I, if I couldn't find it, I made it, you know like yeah. it, it was it was heaps of fun um, and you know that was a big thing. I guess you can sort of build your whole um, consumer philosophy on that, like that's how we do things. So
0: it's so nice to. I can't remember why I
1: got into that. No, but
2: what you've hit on is that, and it's probably something where people in bike world world are just as fanatical as music fans. You probably did. Do you think you've carried that lesson forward that if you invest a lot of energy in in enthusiasts, that you can make a sustainable retail business?
1: Absolutely, to a point, you know, and and to answer the first question, you know, we, we, I don't feel like we got to cash in on the Game of Thrones. things so to speak because we were really engaged in that back catalogue which sort of blew up but we could have pivoted but our whole thing is path of least resistance you know where we're opportunists you know sometimes it's easy just to do something else
2: and there's also yeah. a five-year gap between the download crushing the music industry and tv taking off and like, dad had the
1: record store <laughs> 12 years he was ready for a change you know we've had the bike shop 10 years now and i'm i'm just not as passionate about bikes today as i was 10 years ago mm-hmm. i still love it you know and i breathe it but it's just not the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, dad was ready to get out. The lease was up and they want a big new lease and we thought we'll just do something else. Uh, so there, there's definitely lots of things we do in the bike shop that's very different. We, you know, it's a funny space because it's a big store and to to pay the rent on such a big, you know, our floor space across our two levels, we've got storage upstairs, sales downstairs, including our cafe is 1,200 metres square, a block from the um, centre of Albury. It's our building, but we've still got to pay rent on it. And it's yeah. expensive. So we've got to move a lot of volume. So we are, we are probably a little bit more commodity-ish than what my perfect idea would be. There's compromises. Life's full of compromises, right? And we wanted to be our own landowner and we like that location. And we, we gave up that we couldn't be, I guess, as niche and bespoke as we wanted. And there's other shops now that fill that gap for that customer, which is awesome. That's the mm-hmm. market working we do things very different so to give people a bit of a run through of cycle station if if you like we a few years ago when i was super hopped up and and ready to take over and dominate (laughs) uh, i brought in i look at pressure points and i look at um, areas of discomfort and staff if i went away to a conference or if i went away for a um, hot weekend with my wife or whatever it was the phone calls i would get from staff would be this person wants a um, refund on this they're not happy Mm-hmm. This customer wants this fixed. They're not happy. You never get a phone call going, Jake, just sold the best bike. You know, you're, you're going to love me. You know, they yeah. call you when there's issues when it's yeah. a weekend. I got sick of getting the phone calls. But more than that, I got sick of there being a need to call me for two reasons. The customers shouldn't be unhappy and the staff should be empowered to fix it anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, that was a massive um, shortfall in our operation. So I wrote a policy, which if you walk in our store, it's behind the counter on the It's three meters wide and a meter and a half tall. <laughs> And it says so. Pretty small. It's big, and we don't do fine print. We do bold print in yeah. our businesses. Fine prints for pussies. <laughs> um, the, it, it reads: If at any moment, for any reason, you are unsatisfied with any product purchased from us, we will gladly re- repair, replace, or refund your money.
2: This episode was edited by Deadset Podcasting. If you want your podcast to sound this
1: good, check out deadsetpodcasting.com forward slash services. Get the sound you're chasing. It reads, if at any moment, for any reason, you are unsatisfied with any product purchased from us, we will gladly repair, replace, or refund your money. And what it essentially means is you can come in, buy a $4,000 e-bike, write it for two years and bring it back and go, I hate the color and the staff will give you a refund without calling me. They'll put it through. Mm -hmm. And that naturally doesn't happen often. We've had a few people take the piss, which is fine because, you know, the system's there. Someone's going to rort it, but they normally don't hang around. You know, they -hmm. they, they, they might leverage it once. We've never had it twice. But on the most part, it's sped up our sales cycle. Mm -hmm. People don't um and ah. We go, look, we really think this is the right, this is our job. We choose, we help people choose bikes. Mm-hmm. We know that it's a lot of money for you, $1,000 to get bike bikes, a lot of money, but we, we are so confident in our assessment of your needs, buy it, and if you're not happy with it, in two, three months, bring it back, we'll swap it, we'll give you money back. And it speeds up sales cycles. Mm-hmm. We get a lot of bikes returned and people upgrade them because they wish they spent more, mm-hmm. which is a cool thing. Like they sell a $600 <laughs> yeah. bike and they bring it back two months later, we can still sell it for 500 as a, yeah. you know, a bit used, we have a special sticker that says a guarantee return bike. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and then they spend f- 1500 on a bike. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, and the staff don't have any customer conflicts. They never have to dig their heels in and go, look, our policy clearly states yep. no refund, no receipt, no refund, or whatever it might be. You know, They've just give, been given every tool imaginable by the business owner to fix it. And every now and then I get staff going, Jake, you're doing too much. We don't want to give them, you know, there shouldn't be that much. You're doing, are you sure you want to do that? I'm like, don't argue with me about this. Just go fix the customer because there's so much more power in keeping a customer than getting a new one. Mm -hmm. It's expensive (laughs) and hard and awkward and slow to get new customers. But just to be on a name-to-name basis and for people to know that you're going to look after them is, you know, so much easier. So we do a few things like that. We have our satisfaction guaranteed sales policy, we do lifetime-free servicing. So if you buy a bike um, from cycle station for the ticket price, we will service it for free forever. Oh, we never Lord. charge you labor in servicing it. So yeah, there's just parts. There's a, pad- there's a catalog, and down the bottom of the last page, it says the bold print. You know <laughs> it does not include parts, yeah. um, and you know, it does not include labor to fit parts. So if you want to upgrade a new suspension fork, just as if yeah. anyone would, you'd have to pay for the mm-hmm. forks and for them to get fitted. But there's four services, up to four services a year. Um, that you're allowed to have. There's no exclusions like the staff go. When we, well, I remember when I tried to roll it in, the staff were like, yeah, so if they miss one service and they come in for the next one, which is more expensive, we can't give them that one. We've got to give them the first one, don't we? I'm like, just give it to them. What yeah. are you fighting with them for? Just like, who cares? We're, we're ahead. We didn't have to do one service. We're ahead 30 minutes. Like just yeah. fix them, you know? So we, we do that. We sell another membership called Flat Fighter Squad where you give us 100 bucks and we'll fix every flat tire the bike ever gets for free. That's cool. It's like a flat guarantee. And you know? is that,
2: was that your first membership type of product that you offered? Did you learn anything through offering that?
1: Yeah, well, you know, it, it doesn't make any money. It sucks, uh, <laughs> yeah. but it keeps people coming in the shop. The reason I rolled that out was my cousin Isaac was at the skate park. And we were, you know, this is three four years ago, riding his BMX and he got a flat so he's pushing his bike from the skate park down in, um you know, near where Osteo mm-hmm. Health used to be, wherever, yeah. the netball courts. And he's pushing his bike, which might be a 10-minute walk up to cycle station with a flat tire. And he gets to the full cycle on Macaulay Street, which is two blocks away from our store, and was sick of walking. So he's gone in and bought a tube and borrowed the tools to fit it to his BMX. And he's kept riding. If he kept walking two blocks, he would have got a tube for like, you know, 60% off. Yeah. And we would have fit it for him on the spot. And I thought if my own cousin can't be asked to walk two blocks to save five bucks, like what are my customers doing when they've got a flat? If they're on the wrong side of town and that shop's closer, I don't like that. I want my customers to come to my shop. So then I came up with this um, great idea that every time you get a flat, we'll fix it for free if you sign up to the membership. And it keeps them coming in the shop and they're getting a coffee yeah. while they're wait. You know, I think it just adds to so the list of crazy stuff. So you're saying
2: it doesn't make you money, obviously it costs you money well, directly, a- but the what's actual- the flow on effect? What's the goodwill of offering something a- like that?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, the the, poly- the policy itself, I ran up the numbers the other day and it's like, you know, for, for every 10 grand of memberships we sell, to date, we've paid out like 13 grand, but they're never ending memberships. So what's the true cost of it? You know, it's really hard to quantify, but it yeah. sucks. But when they're in, you know, customers love it. Customers, I know for a fact, people buy bikes off us to get that membership.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it's really hard to value, yeah. but I don't really need to value it because it's awesome and I love it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and also, like you said, they're just sitting there waiting, getting a coffee. There's bike right them. They're in the store <laughs> looking at other things.
2: Yes. Can I, can I be honest? I never actually realized, and I probably should have having been a customer of the cafe, not of the bike shop, not yet, that they were connected. So can I ask you, are you in charge of the cafe when you're in the bike shop? Or yes, you? yep. So if I come to you as one staff member from one place about oh, what are we going to do with this bike? It's late, can you ring the supplier? And then someone comes and says, this person's unhappy with their bagel. How much How much switching are you doing and do you feel like you're getting better at that over time?
1: Yeah, so to clarify, I run both businesses but we have different staff. Yep. So if if you had a, a food complaint or query that'd be directed to a cafe staff who'd be wearing an apron running tables yep um, and you know the bike shop staff and the cafe staff liaise. they'll handball customers and if you come in and you're really upset because the bike that we promised you would be serviced by three and it's three and it's not done for whatever reason a bike shop manager will take you and introduce you to the cafe manager and shout your coffee yeah okay you know, we have that sort of interconnected relationship but the staff don't handle each other's queries uh, except for I guess our um, store manager Jason, who will jump in if if needed. We have a few staff that are pretty robust, like we'll throw them on dishes on busy Sundays, or they'll run fl- run. Well, orders, that was going to but... be my
2: next question: How much? Because I I've, I've worked a long time in hospitality, mostly in management, not so much on the floor. But there's always a need for an extra body when things get busy in yes. a cafe. <laughs> how how open are your staff to that sort of nudging? De-
1: depends on the role. <laughs> like you know, there's we've got. I don't know, maybe six mechanics down the back and you're not going to pull a mechanic to put them in the kitchen. Almost yeah. doesn't matter how busy it is because mechanics time's booked. Like yeah. our six man workshop is booked solid 40 days ahead at the moment. Mm-hmm. You know, they, and they've yeah. got, they've got billable minutes. They can't just disappear and go and wash dishes. Yeah. Uh, but you know, managers, the bike shop managers will happily jump in and wash dishes and you know, you, Kitchens can be fun places. Like our they're kitchen's a awesome, fun yeah. place. They're, like one,
2: they're one of the funnest places in the world. If you have got a good crew in a there, a lot,
1: you know, a lot suck. And I was when I took over the cafe, I was amazed at um, how toxic they can get, how quickly. Oh. Um, but we we nailed that pretty quick. Um, I think I had three chefs walk out on me. Uh, you know, you set a standard, follow through with the standard. Chef leaves, you know, and repeat, repeat. And then after a while, you just start attracting the appropriate chef, mm-hmm. you know. But the floor staff and that will jump over happily. Uh, cafe staff uh, almost never help out in the bike shop because this is never needed like that. You know, floor traffic in a retail environment is a lot different. But generally, when the cafe is cranking, so is the bike shop. There's not always bodies, yeah, available. But yeah, it's it's good culture. The stuff float around.
2: Yeah, just people being able to switch like that in the same environment always fascinates me. Just okay. I'm- because they're not the same industry. Yes.
1: Yeah. we got some staff that don't <laughs> love it, and I've got some staff that froth it because they just like something yeah, different. To
2: me, it sounds fascinating. Yeah. Because, yeah, I don't know.
0: It's just a perfect pairing because I just imagine lycra and bikes Yeah. and guys parked on the side of the road having coffee. So, it's
1: just- That's what we envisioned, and that's why we called it Café Musette, a, a musette. It's, a, it's, a, it's either French or Italian. I think it's a French word for the feed bag that they hand the cyclists. So you see them riding up the hill on Tour de France and the team members are handing them these cloth bags full of food. It's called a musette. So okay. That's why we called it Café Musette. A customer actually suggested it. We're out on a ride one day. C- Can I-, I
2: ask you a question then? Sorry to cut you off, but what, is, what funny stories have you got about people guessing about what it actually means. Have you?
1: Has anyone said odd? Oh, Not many guesses. I think people think believe generally it's an abstract word. The, the funniness comes when people um, say it and spell <laughs> it. We get musset, yeah. uh, <laughs> flat out, and musetti. We get quite a bit, and the spelling of it is is hysterical. And it's one of those things that you try and spell it over the phone when you place an order, you know, M-U-S-E-T-T-E. And for some reason, it just doesn't come across a line. It doesn't matter how many yeah. times you say it. So it's funny. You know, in one of our rules, I guess, in businesses as a family is just keep it simple, like the music shop, you know, cycle station, like the pretty simple things. Yeah. Um, and we sort of fell out of that with cafe Musette, And it's even harder now because we're, we're not playing in cafe space anymore. Mm-hmm. Like we're, we're sort of a restaurant okay. almost now. Like we're, we're seven till three, seven days a week, breakfast, lunch. But we because we've got the farm and all the meat in the cafes on the farm, except for fish, like it's all our chickens, all our beef, it's all our pork. and uh, I've got um two share farmers that are planting out two and a half thousand meters squared of vegetables. We're going to do all our own vegetable production. We're really going for the paddock to plate thing. so we start we start punching out restaurant quality meals, which cost restaurant prices, mm-hmm. and you've got cafe above the door, and you know that's a real, Headbutt point for me at the moment, you know, being held to cafe pricing speed and uh, menu, but delivering what resonates with us and our, and our values and our mission. And, you know, some customers love it. A lot of customers that come to us because of it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of customers that go, you know, one star Google food's expensive. You know, I, I don't get me started on reviews. We should segue. But I've never claimed it was. You know, I've never claimed it was cheap food. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why you criticise well, a business for being expensive. A psychological
2: level that people ha- they have a ceiling in their head where they hear the word cafe, of course, and it's just out of alignment with reality.
1: Yep. quite often. And that's what we're, you know, that's what we're hitting up against at the moment. One of the current projects. How do we? <laughs> how do we uh, mitigate that?
0: Mitigate. So, that Take go. the cafe off.
1: Those things take it's just years, a feed though. Bag. The, there is some. It's um, just the
0: feedback. <laughs> just the <a> feedback.
2: <laughs> you a- could try the feedback. I'm not sure how that would go.
1: You could serve I people
2: would... food in a feedback. Yeah. Like yeah. It'd four probably four. be cool if it was in a laneway the in Melbourne. The but... visual
0: thought of just. It just reminds me of horses, too, when you like put a nose well, That's what I was thinking of the they're, they're called yeah. musettes, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. That's all I. Just mix it all up, I suppose, like the restaurant quality presentation wouldn't be there if you're just serving it all in a bag, but yeah. still, <laughs> yeah. that's where you can maybe cut, cut some costs back. Yeah, exactly. So, can
2: I just segue a tiny little bit? Yes. We're getting a little bit closer to the end. Jake, I remember you as, well, I didn't know anything about you having the music shop until I put it together in my head that you were the young guy that used to work there that then started coming to where I was selling guitars in Beechworth road in Wodonga at Billy Hyde's High Fidelity at the time and you came in half a dozen times looking for a Yamaha bass and I thought is this kid ever going to buy this bass because he keeps coming in to play it and then I remember one day you came in and started telling me how you got the bass finally or you were still looking at it and we just completely clashed at the time because I I just didn't believe that you could play because you kept looking at it and you never picked it up (laughs) and I'm like is this but you were going for a five-string Yamaha. Do you still have an interest in music and
1: do you still play? I uh, I don't remember that distinctly. Yeah. Um, that did
2: could... you ever play? Was it just a dream to play the bass? No, I, yeah, You yeah. did
1: play? Is
0: this like your own version of what were their names that came into the shop that didn't like you.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, Jacqueline and Katrina.
2: Was, <laughs> was he a, it
0: was Jacob like a Jacqueline and Katrina.
2: No, it's just watching a young fella look at a bass for weeks yep. and never actually touch the thing or pick it up. Oh, we get it with bikes
1: too. You yeah, know, it, it was just
2: like, is this kid going to actually play this thing?
1: The same thing with bikes is when they always want a bike with more suspension and bigger tyres and you're just like, mate, there's no way you need a bike with more suspension because you can't handle it. You, know, you judge your customers. <laughs> um, yeah, I can play. So I play piano, drums and guitar. Yep. Uh, and I haven't done much since – I've been working a bit more and had kids, but you know, at one point I used to import, I used to parallel import Rickenbackers and flick them on eBay. Okay. Way well. back And that's that's the A bass. Rickenbacker
2: for the people listening is a very specific aesthetic guitar. Yeah, yeah.
1: I love them. Yeah. So I had a, the bass I ended up with, um, I had a, uh, like a P bass, a Music Man type of thing. Yep. I can't even remember if it's been so long now. And I had a 4003 black and white Rickenbacker. Oh, nice. Um, and I, never liked picking up and i still don't like picking up instruments in music shops exactly probably exactly for the reason that people feel intimidated when they go into bike shops Mm -hmm. you know people that the first thing every customer says to us is i'm not a professional like yeah. every single customer, you go, "Good morning." You know how how can I help you? I'm not a professional. I just want a bike to ride to work. And They get all stressed <laughs> out and they're so worried about being judged yeah, and stuff. Yeah. And your I think, assumptions,
2: <laughs> obviously, that they're not professional. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, well,
1: <laughs> you don't buy things if you're professional, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I get it. We have a bit of fun, um, and that's something that we've been uh, g- really good at as a store. Is we've we've never had that vibe. We've mm-hmm. never, because we're not that cuss, we're that shop that pumps out $800 bikes. We're not that yeah. high-end shop. Um, but I probably feel like the in the music shop in that same yeah. uh, contrast. But at one point, I had like 25 guitars. I used to collect yeah. them. Yeah. oh, nice. So I've only got two at the moment. I th- sold the rest to pay for something. My dog breeding business, I think, when I started breeding dogs. <laughs> um, and my favorite guitar at the moment is a 1934 National Duelian Resonator.
2: Oh, and you own that?
1: I own that, yeah. And so wow. I, I, that was the first thing. So when I started working at the music shop, Dad was paying me like 310 bucks a week, and I didn't even know how to log on to my bank account. So I didn't even know how much money I had or for years I didn't log on I just, I just I just worked you know dad paid room and board and he'd, he'd get food and give me money to go to the movies with my friends or whatever mm-hmm. and I remember distinctly it was 310 bucks because at the end of working there four or five years I remember looking at it going geez that's a rip off I did heaps of hours <laughs> but the, the, the first thing I ever bought with my own money was that guitar and that would have been I uh, would have been 18 so it would have been 12 or 13 years ago and it cost me five and a half grand Wow! Back wow. then, yeah, and I absolutely love it.
0: Yep. For those that are not here, Josh's eyebrows went high above his glasses when yeah. he heard well, that's, that. That's
2: that's one of the. There might be thirty or forty guitars people want to own in their life, and that's one of them. Yeah, one Light of the yeah. one of the classic guitars. Can we it's, get a
0: photo? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I'll
1: flick something through. You can borrow it if you want. If you want it for a couple of weeks or something, oh, yeah, I'll take you up on that. Yeah,
2: it's, um, <laughs> I'm actually just getting right back into
0: recording fan. for he's, the first
1: time in ages he's at the moment. Doing so.
0: Like little fangelly, I am. I'm <laughs>
1: getting a little bit flustered. <laughs> it's really cool. It's got you know the rolled f the rolled holes instead of the stamped oh, holes nice. in the body. Like it's a really cool thing, and you know it's hard to play. I tell people it's like putting strings on a door. You know, the action's horrible, but the sound's unreal. Okay. The, the shame about those guitars, you know, they've got a, um like a cone in them that pushes the sound out Yeah, and okay. you play them, they sound great, but it's never as good as listening. You know, being in front of it, I think, is mm. the real great sound. So, I'd love to listen to you play it so I could actually enjoy it for once. Well, us. I'll have to scrub up my playing
2: because it's still pretty average at the moment, but I'll take you up on that. Wow. <laughs> I just
0: have one question. This is a bit more business orientated before we sort of wrap up. What... What are your strategies with time management with everything that you do? Because you do so many things. You just randomly mentioned a dog breeding business. Yeah. in there, like I know. So, can you just sort of give us a bit of a an yeah. idea? Is it writing it all on old envelopes?
1: Uh, a little <laughs> you, bit, a little yeah. bit. It de- it depends. I am not putting you know hours and days in in heaps of time every week into every business mm-hmm. uh one of my heroes theodore roosevelt which is a uh, namesake of my second son theodore oh. um said i can't remember the quote exactly i'm going to butcher it but he said something to the effect of um hire a good man for the job and let them do it mm-hmm. you know and i really believe that um, micromanagers manage themselves out of having managers you know you micromanage people you don't let them do the job and they're just going to go somewhere where they're appreciated and where they're let to do a job so i've got you know for a 10 year old 10 year old business that i um started managing when i was 20 uh i've got a lot of long-standing high-level managers still with me and i really take my hat off to them because one we've been able to you know work together and grow the grow the business substantially and work it out but two i appreciate those people had the humility to work with a 20 year old when I turned up. because a lot of staff didn't, when we bought mm-hmm. the business, heap of stuff flaked really quickly because they just didn't like me because a young assertive bossy young guy changing everything the way we did everything. So, you know, the cycle station, which is the, the, the main, I guess, cash cow in, in the role of everything is also the longest standing business. And i probably put the least amount of hours into that than any of them. Cause I've got such a good crew there. You know, mm-hmm. there's some times where it's big days and big weeks and events and whatever, but for the most part, it's really just top level stuff i get involved with or when stuff really blows up i'm I, i'm like a hole plugger i run around plugging <laughs> holes i guess uh i i schedule a lot like i've google calendars mm-hmm. it's a fair old workout and i guess i'm i'm relatively efficient people say to me all the time you mustn't sleep much you know i'm getting i get 8 9 hours a night minimum like i sleep Last night I went to bed with my boy, we are out at the new farm. We just bought a new farm we're out there building fences. It's out of range, so there's no reception. So yeah. I, like, I, get, I get a little bit jittery when I'm out there and I can't receive phone calls. But we went to bed at 7.30. We were cooked. You know, <laughs> we were flogged. We are up at five and we went out there and started working. But I um, get a lot done when I'm going. I don't substitute sleep because when you're going, it needs to be quality. And I don't do things like read emails and unaction them. Like if you haven't heard back from me, I haven't read the email. If you, it's another Roosevelt thing, you know. When you get the letter, open the letter, and when you open the letter, action the letter. You know, don't just open things; let them pile up. So, you know, I've got, I've got a few, just I guess, things that I do, but mainly it's just good people.
2: Further to Mel's question, because I think that's brilliant. How do you just? This is obviously just for your, from your perspective. How do you know when you've got one of those people? Like, what feeling, or what do you notice about a person, or can you? Now being much more experienced, forecast, if we help this person and train them in this way, we can see that this person has the makings of a quote-unquote good manager that takes pressure off you.
1: Yeah. There's no silver bullet. You know, I, I still get involved in a lot of the managerial hiring. Like You'll see me on Facebook pop up going, hey, guys, we've got a job available, rah, 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 and put my number there and I'll just flick them straight on to the appropriate manager. Like I'm not really involved in putting those people mm-hmm. on. I turn up in the shop and in my stores and there's staff I don't know all the time. Mm-hmm. Always trying to learn their names and catch up with them, and you know, if if you, if you haven't been there three or four years, I'm still try or three or four months, I'm still trying, you know, especially the cafe, you know, high turnover in hospitality, and I don't always get it right. I've put on people um, in the last six months that I thought were were really going to be, you know, crack shots for me, and it just it just hasn't worked. But there's the the few high end managers I've got, like I have got Jason, Christie, Matt. Kylie, Craig, I've got a good bunch and I'm going to miss someone and upset somebody if they even bother to listen to this, you chumps, should be at work. Um, <laughs> Correct. But I've got a good list a list of people that when I put them on, I knew, and I think it was more a value thing, that they didn't want to be, those people didn't come for a job because they wanted to make coffee or they wanted to repair bikes. When we had the first conversation and they hit me up for work, they said, we want to work for your business. Mm -hmm. You know, and we don't care what the role is. We just want to be involved in the values, in the mission.
2: It was a why as opposed to a what type of thing.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, that's important. And I cop it all the time. I had a good friend from church from years ago um, sent me a nasty message on April 1st. And I thought it was a joke. I was expecting to get an apology a couple of days later. Sent me this wild thing about being a, um, you know, a a show pony pretending I'm for the community and this and that. And then he defriended me because obviously, you know, when you when you talk the talk, you're expected to walk the walk Mm -hmm. and not everybody sees what goes on and you can't always please everybody. Mm -hmm. Like I, unfortunately, you know, not everybody always loves you when you're in business. And I really try my best to do my best. And I, I, and my best to me is holistic. It's not line the bank account because you can, you know, die miserable and rich, right? You know, there's more to it. But you don't always get it right, and you're not perfect. I stuff things up all the time. Yeah, um, excellent. So, I like
0: this. Yep, so, I resonate with this a lot. I yep.
1: just, you know, and I, it's it's like the story I was talking about before about the roadside workers. Before we came on air, I think I was, and I was saying how uh, a friend of mine started working there, and the the female lollipop assistance, whatever, are becoming more prevalent because the men get abused so much. The cars waiting in go, oi, mate, hurry up. What the hell? Bloody hell's taking too long. You guys are idiots. And if it's chicks, they roll down the window and go, thanks, darling. Good job. Yeah. You know, and for me, what grinds my gears about that is less that situation because that's just whatever it is. What really upsets me about that is the same guy that's gone. You guys are useless. Hurry up. This is taking too long. Why do you even need to do it? They're the same person that complains about crap roads. Yeah. You know, that's what upsets me about the whole thing is, is complainers are complainers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's really hard as an assertive business person who's trying to accomplish a lot for what I think are a lot of good reasons that everybody's got a platform straight to me and I hear yeah. everything, you know. <laughs> yeah. So it's not like I sit at home getting hate mail all night, but, you know, one one bad review in a month just ruins your month because yeah. you know, we care. Yeah, And I, I, I talk to business friends all the time and we talk, you know, reviewing, social media reviewing is going to be one of the hot topics in business, <laughs> mm-hmm. especially at the moment because everyone's um, frustrated and upset and wants to go travel and wants to dine out more and whatever it is. And, you know, I'm always coaching my friends going, you know, it's good that you're upset because if you weren't upset, it means you don't care and blah, blah, yeah. blah. <laughs> and then I get home and I get one and I'm like, this guy's an okay. idiot he doesn't know anything. <laughs> you obviously have some tools of dealing with it. Can I ask you a
2: question? And Mel and I, just before we were – Talking on the phone earlier about just where we're at with two different things that we do, yes. but it's live performance related. I had one joke in my comedy set the other night that didn't work, mm-hmm. and all the rest worked to either a pretty decent level or an OK level yes. for where I'm at as a comedian, which is not very far. But they worked, and there was one that didn't, and I've thought about the one that didn't exclusively yes. since Saturday. Of night. course, the moment where I expected. That people would get it, and they didn't get it, yes. and it was probably lack of me performing it properly, or the joke's not funny, one of yep. the two. But how would you advise me to move on from that as someone that deals with negative feedback?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because it's not public; it's me criticizing myself. Sure. Yeah, you know, and and you would have lost sleep over it. You know, like well, I like- went to bed
2: both buzzing, and also I woke up. I got over the buzz, and I started thinking about that joke and i haven't thought about anything since
1: absolutely you know it doesn't matter how many times people clap you on the back could be a sold out show and the next show sells out and you still remember that one joke you know i i heard once that 10 positive reviews make up one negative and it's absolute crap it just mm. it doesn't doesn't weigh up like <laughs> it that it depends on how bad the legacy not, is. <laughs> not if not if you care right but yeah. um i would just say to you you know what do you want to get out of it like would is because even though you're upset or it didn't work and it didn't feel good or whatever. You just have to think, what am I trying to get? Do you want to persist with the joke? Like, do you genuinely think it's a good joke and we can try it pretty soon off air? No. <laughs> no, <laughs> need, need, needs a setting. Yeah. Um, but you know, uh, if you really think it's good, try it again and yeah. see what happens. And yeah. if not, you know, path of least resistance. That's what I'm about. I'd be just like all the, I'd be thinking and how to get over it. What was the joke that got the most laughs and how can I milk that and drop that one? Yeah, that's pretty good.
0: That's good.
2: And what you're saying makes complete sense now that I'm three days removed from it. Of course. Yesterday, I would have just said, nah, Nah. stop talking. Yeah. I don't want to hear that.
1: (laughs) Of course, you you don't, because it's your baby, and it could be a a gem, right?
2: But the more you care about something, and the more important it is to you, and the amount- I got a really nice compliment from someone the other night that they could see how much work I've put in behind the scenes, because I haven't had much stage time, but I'm getting a lot better. And that meant a lot to me. And it almost counterbalanced the- one joke that didn't work but it's so hard to concentrate and like I should have taken his compliment and put all my energy into focusing on how grateful I was that he said that. It's hard to do. It's happening now throughout the week. I'm like, oh, I'm shifting my focus but (laughs) it takes some time.
0: Your own worst critic and I – But
2: when you care though that you like that, if if I was just getting up for a lark, if I thought the joke was funny, I would have just laughed at myself and it wouldn't have mattered really at all. But it's when you're
1: trying to create something. Yeah. You obviously thought it was good because you said it. Yeah. Jacob, you
0: know? do you have a an underlying stress that happens when you're about to start something new? Because you seem <laughs> to – Kind of what this we were talking about. <laughs> of, uh, where you've, you've hit these high bars in what is perceived as everything that you do, and I'm sure that that's not necessarily the case because you've yes. had to work through a few things. But does that – cause you a lot of stress about the bar you have to reach and do you always want to hit a little bit higher? As you say, punch punching a bit higher because I know for me, if I I do well at something and then I'm asked to do something that's almost the same or I get so stressed out about doing better, I need to – and that's my pressure that I put on myself – no one else would know what's going on internally in yes, in yeah. me, but the stress of exceeding that bar that was unexpected to start with and then get better and better and better causes great anxiety in me. How do you deal with that?
1: That's not really a thing for me. like really? I, i'm not a I'm not a very nervous person. This morning, I was nervous, um which I guess would be a less severe form of anxiety. Yeah. I was nervous doing a job with a couple of my boys out at the farm and my leading hand at the farm, Michael, who's been with me 16 months, he looked at me and he said, you're nervous, aren't you? I said, yep. He goes, I've never seen you nervous before. Yeah. And we've done some wild stuff with yeah. animals that like, shouldn't, shouldn't be able to do. Like yeah. we, move, we move 50 pigs around in a paddock with a single piece of hot wire, which yeah. everyone says doesn't work. <laughs> I've you know,
0: we, seen that. It's cool.
1: So it's uncommon for me, but for me in that moment this morning, I just wasn't, I wasn't prepared. I hadn't had my ducks lined up mm-hmm. and it and it was a time sensitive thing mm-hmm. and it just got me a bit on edge. But, you know, normally I'm prepared Yeah, and I guess I don't, I'm not very often beholden to others. There's not that, ex, there's not that real over, overreaching expectation that people are relying on me, which probably sounds a bit funny because I pay 50 wages every week so that like I'm acutely aware, especially post COVID. Mm-hmm. people like the amount of meetings I had sitting down with staff when they when we thought we're going to get shut down altogether right at the start staff that have been with me a long time or not a long time and everyone's like I can't go two weeks without my income or I can't go one week without my income and I'm thinking well if my shop's shut how much money do I have and trying to work it all out you know you go through something like that and you really start to understand the reliance on you Mm -hmm. in your community and, and as a business owner but that's because I've grown into it over the last ten years, it's not something that I really think about. And because I guess I'm normally the um, the big fish in my own little pond, mm-hmm. there's not those those other expectations. There's not like workplace expectations on me. My staff managed me out of the roster yeah. in the bike shop. That's probably exactly what you wanted as an owner. It, it was <laughs> you know, and it was liberating because it's not easy to do. Mm-hmm. Most business most business owners have bought themselves jobs. They get a hundred thousand dollar loan. They buy a business, they're working 80 hours a week, they're not paying themselves super, they're not paying themselves an equivalent wage to the, what that effort would be getting, mm-hmm. and they've got all the stress and they've got the loan. You know, they've just bought themselves a crappy job, and that's the vast majority of businesses out there. And as a business owner, to get yourself off the roster out of the day to day, and just be top level involved, changing direction, you know, f- fixing holes. Then you're a business owner. But to fall back to what would you say? That's when the criticisms start. I get slagged all the time for being a, a you know show pony or whatever it might be because I'm not in the trenches. Mm-hmm. I'm not perceived perceived. To, I'm not on the floor selling bikes and making coffees, mm-hmm. you know. But I I've never set out to want a job, I wanted to be a business owner. So I can't really, um, no, help, no, no, I can't was, really help you no, a whole it, lot. It, but,
0: it's fine. And you say something that resonates from someone else that we interviewed not not so long ago Lauren Lappin and she said the biggest transact like one of the biggest transitions for her was you know working her way out of the business and yeah. wanting to hire people that were better than her yes. so that
1: I've maintained that for years, you know, why would I hire somebody for a job that's not as good as me? Because that's a common small business owner mindset, you know. You want to be the best. I'm the best at everything. I know how everything runs. That's why I need to get here before the staff do and stay back after. And I need to push through the lunch break so they all do it properly. And that's great at a small level in terms of what the customer gets out of it. You know, if you are really that good, but it's oh, cause not- Because
2: your best customer w- would want you to do everything exactly. if they had their choice. You know? And yeah. if
1: you can really manage everything that good by yourself, you know, I guess the place runs well, but it's not sustainable in terms of you can't really do it forever and maintain other important things in your life, like quality of life or family relationships. I don't know that many people that have destroyed their relationships by trying to prop their business up, mm-hmm. by it, trying to make it what they expect their customers need it to be yep it's not easy <laughs> that's huge um so yeah ex- expectations weird i could talk a lot about uh, so, the way our customers should ex- inter interact with businesses yeah but-
2: maybe we can talk about that in the future but we're starting to get to around time so can i ask you one last question and then maybe mel might have something else but you mentioned i'm not sure if it was on air or off air about travel yes just two quick ones what place or experience stands out most to you in your mind out of all the places that you've traveled and if we didn't get it on audio jake said that he's traveled to 50 ish countries yeah nearly 50 nearly 50 and what is the best coffee you've had
1: radio so the probably the coolest travel experience i've had was in uganda i've been to uganda twice on uh, missions work as part of the church i go to and we fundraised money before we went and we went over to an organisation called Watoto, which is the word for child in Ugandan, and we uh, built houses. And the really cool thing about that was not only it's such a contrast. Like everywhere else I've travelled, still being a bit west, mm-hmm. you know, that's crazy. Not west. It's right out there. The, the, you're driving through towns and it's dirt floors, no electricity. You know, it's yeah. it's it's a real. The thing that always struck me was they're happy. They're like yeah. all the ones that actually have a hut. You mm-hmm. know, they're all smiling at you. Like it was, it's it's a goosebumps thinking about it it was a life-changing experience but that was um that was lots of fun and the thing i loved about that organization and why i guess it stuck with me so long and why i did it again was it's a perpetual cycle so when you when you fundraise the money and you give it to them and build your house they're also investing in local in their local community to farm and generate an income to fund the next one Mm -hmm. it's a flywheel Mm -hmm. it's really cool instead of sending money over and feeding a kid or giving someone a pair of shoes and it just stops, and it's dead money. Like as a business person, I hate that. Just like throwing money at a fire and just going like fix that. But it actually, you were, you were you're basically investing, and the return wasn't for you, but for the people that needed it. You know that was my favorite travel experience. The best coffee I've ever had would be probably one of my uh, regular go to spots, which would be at the Brothers Cup mm. in North Aubrey, Union Road. Jeff, the roaster there, is actually my brother in law. He let me marry his sister, which is pretty cool. <laughs> Good on you, Jeff. Was it um, Jeff? <laughs> and we we don't use Jeff's coffee in our cafe. We use uh, a, another bean from Victoria, but I haven't actually told anybody this, but we're transitioning to Jeff's bean next week. Oh. Yeah. Jeff makes a unreal coffee.
2: Right. And that's local. Out of all the places and coffees
1: you've well, had. Well, coffee sucks overseas. I've like, been told that. The coffee culture, like I've been you know, all through both sides of Europe, Asia, Africa, America. No one does coffee culture like Australia. Well, we are the world leaders. When you when you go overseas, like you land in Barcelona or London and you want to go to a cafe, you look for the reviews on Google that say <laughs> Melbourne-esque, you know, and that, that's the good cafe. Yeah, I remember
2: cafe. the comedian Bill Burr, who I'm a huge fan of, him and his wife, they could not get over the coffee in Melbourne. Yes. They thought they'd had a few good ones, you know, New York and Paris, and they, just, when they had one in Melbourne, they said it was mind-boggling. I don't.
1: I don't drink coffee when I travel. Like uh, you know, Anne will find a place, or we'll go somewhere. Like I went to Portland and I went to Stumptown Coffee because you have to. The place has probably been burnt down now. Who knows what's going on there? Yep. And they're just not what we have. We've our food scene, our cafe scene, and our coffee scene really is a cut above.
2: So when people say that Australia doesn't have any definitive culture, obviously, well, that's completely incorrect with Indigenous culture. But I mean, just as far as day to day, yes, we have. A cafe and coffee culture
1: at a world class level. Yeah, we're, I, I truly believe we're leaders. Like, cafes around, you know, and, that, and that's the funny thing about Australia is our cafes walk that restaurant line. Like, overseas, you go in, order your coffee, get the bagel out of the window. It's like a food truck. Cafes are food trucks or diners. You know, they slop on from the Bay Marie and give mm-hmm. you your breakfast. Like, they don't really have things, you know, maybe it's all changing now. I did most of my traveling, you know, between five and 15 years ago, but uh, our food's unreal. Yep, especially breakfast stuff for some reason. We do good breakfast,
0: which
2: is the most important meal of the day, as they say. I
0: agree. Thank you so much for coming in and taking some time out in your super busy schedule. Could you just list off your businesses before we round out, just so people that can follow your socials and maybe get on board with your new club line for
1: butchery? (laughs) Yeah, sure (laughs) thing. Club butchery. So we've got Cycle Station, which is our bike shop, Cafe Musette, the cafe inside the bike shop. We've got Wolki Farm, Wolki's W-O-L-K-I, which is where we uh, grow all of our animals and produce, uh, which we're now pushing through Wolki Butchery. So in the butchery, we do custom processing. So people who are local farmers and want to process their animal and all above board and end up with a retail saleable product, like a final product, we facilitate that. So in three months, I picked up 15 local farms that sell at the local markets and stuff with, with no marketing, didn't call any of them. They all just turned up, which was really cool I was like, they wanted service, which they weren't getting elsewhere. The dog breeding business is walkie schnauzers, which I was is,
2: going to finish up and ask about whether that was still going. So, cause um, a part of me was like, hope uh, so. I hope it's still going. <laughs> so walkie schnauzers,
1: I started with my sister yeah. breeding miniature schnauzers oh. and wow. we That's started cool. that maybe four years ago and I sold my share of it to my sister uh, so, she's running that full-time. She, she runs her own show there, but I'm getting into standard schnauzers, the bigger breed. So, I've got three currently being flown over from Croatia. <laughs>
2: nice. And <laughs> is that the best place to source a schnauzer?
1: Well, you know, dog breeding is absolutely wild. It is the- Oh, it's massive. It's, yeah. it's the, most, like, the most emotional capital I've ever given out for anything was getting into dog breeding. It was- absolutely crazy like it's i reckon it'd be close to going through a divorce trying to get into the breeding world it was Mm -hmm. mental and i did all that to establish the mini of breeding with my sister i got on the front line called the breeders got abused you know had them all all the complaints and all the issues and thought because we're doing everything right, but these people just don't want others in for yeah. it. So I thought I was going to segue all of that and just buy these dogs in Ukraine and get them flown over from Croatia. So that's what I've done. Path of least <laughs> resistance. I like it. It cost more, but it's probably cheaper in the long and run. The
2: <laughs> path of most schnauzer.
1: Yep. That's fantastic. I can't, there's probably, I used to have a heap of other little, I used to have a business called Pipes Down Under, uh, which you can, the Instagram page is still up and I used to import and then resell handmade bespoke tobacco pipes. Oh wow! Yeah, and uh, I used to sell tobacco pipes for like five, six thousand bucks a piece. Oh, and wow. I ran, I ran that for years. And the reason I got out of it was it, it busted the tax, you know, the GST free threshold. And then I started getting all these income tax bills, and it started ticking me off. And then I started getting really busy at the bike shop, and I actually sold all the pipes off to pay f- in the guitars to start getting into the dogs and buy all the dogs.
2: Oh uh, well, that's pretty good. I mean, you so sell cool. guitars, you get dogs. I'm yeah. actually okay with that. As a guitar player,
0: that's awesome, <laughs> right,
2: mate? Well, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening.
0: Hey guys, if you liked that episode of Punching Sideways with Jacob Wolkey, uh, buy us a coffee, bitch. The only way that we can keep doing this, well. Let's be honest. We're going to keep doing it. But it would be nice if occasionally, if you want to donate the coffee, get onto Punching Sideways, click on the Buy Me a Coffee button, and it would just be really helpful to keep me in a more tempered tempered mindset so that Josh can sort of put up with me a little bit longer and we can push out some more cool content for you guys to listen to. Laters.